What? I'm never thinking about anybody except myself. You don't think I'd go without you? You mean that, Stan? Absolutely. You satisfied? Oh, Stan, I don't care for nothing now. Nothing in the world. <laughs> You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind Uh-oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. Listen to me. I'm no good. I never pretended to be. But I love you. I'm a hustler. I've always been one. But I love you. I may be the thief of the world, but with you I've always been on the level. Every day I'm hustling. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. It is the uh, last episode ever. No, just of season one, episode 40, um, Nightmare Alley. I am here, as always, with uh, J. Andrew, Carney name here, world. Really, really stepped up on that one. <laughs> yes, yes, because uh, you know, step right up, step right up, come right down. We're gonna show you the greatest show on earth. That's right. We're gonna talk about Nightmare Alley, and uh, let's go. All right, uh, Conan Carney Noir Neutron, <laughs> the uh, host of Protonic Reversal, and Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends, Carney Neutron and the Secret Friends. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah, I, I see we're gonna run with this bit for a while, and I'm okay. <laughs> And Aline Jones, film critic at Jacobin, and who also writes for and hosts a podcast called Film Suck. Um, we wanted to get you on here for a while, and I'm happy this is the movie that we picked because we're starting out. Uh, we started out this podcast with Kiss Me Deadly, which mm-hmm. obviously you know is one um, one type of noir, and then mm-hmm. this is a very different type of noir. So it's nice mm-hmm. to kind of bookend um, noir yeah. noir. And then we haven't really done any for Noir Vember, mm-hmm. which uh, I like as a as a name, but you know we've kind of been on a Really, you don't like Noir Vember as a? What's what's your beef with it? I love it. 
for, for what it's worth. <laughs> so memorable and true. It's dark. Come on. It's a dark month. We it is a dark it. month. And it's like, yeah. you know. And, the, and to the, be fair, we also did some neo-noirs. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, so, so I, like, I, you know, we've been kind of sort of noiring. Mm-hmm. Noiring around the edges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least you framed it with noir. That's the main thing. I'm still worried that I don't have a carny name. I'm still stuck back on the earlier issue. Damn it. Yeah. I don't know, be Queenie? There's got to be something I can come up with. We'll I kick just, you right I off just, this show if you don't get one soon. So. <laughs> I, I just, I just uh, I, I, you know, I took the bullet and I'm the geek. Um, <laughs> the geek. You know, yeah, that was Tyrone Power. He named his plane the geek. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think he really identified with this guy. It's a perfect. Well, for him. you know how it goes. You either die a grifter, or you live long enough to become the geek. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so, do we all love this movie? I mean, let's make sure we are all on the same page there. I did. Great. I definitely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely. Um, yeah. I um, I I I think that one of the most interesting types of um, noir movies, and also just movies in general from this mm-hmm. era is when they take somebody's life like they try to encapsulate someone's entire life within the plot of the movie and they show like the rise and fall now mm-hmm. i think this movie is interesting because they dedicated like you know 80 percent of it to the rise and then they mm-hmm. left the, the last 20 percent for the fall mm-hmm. and i i also find it interesting that the haze code we've talked about this i think endlessly on this podcast but mm-hmm. um you know the haze code kind of um uh it wasn't just a code that censored what you could and couldn't have in the in the plot of a movie like it censored mm-hmm. the actual like meat of what a movie plot could be so like mm-hmm. you know the the parts of it that were like the ending of a movie if somebody's kind of an anti-hero or a villain they have to get what's what you know what's coming to them mm-hmm. and the the kind of definition of that um it seems like in most cases was either uh jail or death you mm-hmm. know what i mean like if someone's yeah. a criminal they go to jail if someone mm-hmm. is a bad enough criminal there is really no punishment but death because mm-hmm. of, they've transgressed and it's interesting that he kind of gets neither I mean, he he becomes the geek, which obviously is a punishment, mm-hmm. probably worse than jail mm-hmm. in some way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then he also kind of gets rescued at the very end um, by Molly, and she kind of you know seems to he obviously not pull him out of it because I don't think there is pulling somebody out of that. But right. it does seem like he kind of gets uh, redemption as almost like the Pete character. There's a well, that's what I was gonna say though is is that yeah. that's the unhappy angle is he's clearly living out Pete's fate. So now he's gonna be the al- the the raging alcoholic who's only being saved by the good-hearted wife. Um, so she's going to get to be Xena and he's going to get to be Pete. So that's that's less happy than I think a lot of people are thinking. A lot yeah. of people are thinking like, she'll save him. And it's like, yeah, look at him. And it is, you mentioned, you know, in a message to us that the makeup on Tyrone Power is really good to show him as an alcoholic wreck. And it really yeah. is. Why is it so good? They only do yeah. stuff to his eyes. It's fabulous. Yeah, and, and it kind of... It's better almost than like the Irishman where they actually did the full CGI to age yeah. everybody. Like, you know, yeah. it's like they, they go to, I mean, it's also because his face is so expressive as it is. He kind of has like mm-hmm. an Eddie Munster face um, in general because he has the pointed ears and he has like that kind of like vamp- vampiric um, oh, you're mouth. Right. But like, I mean, handsome guy, but still kind of yeah. has that going that when they finally do capitalize on those, that side of his features, I think. Mm-hmm. And really like dial in the the eye um the eye like the eye bags and everything right. um i think it really does well and they've clearly done something crazy where they pulled his eyes down so that they that there there's this all these whites at the bottom which i don't know how they did that but it's very yeah. effective yeah that's yeah, what yeah, i say yeah. when i get up in the morning i really dialed in the <laughs> eye bags this morning <laughs> <laughs> and they've got to do something because he's too i, I, I do want to throw in mm-hmm. 
I, I got to throw in like like uh, I didn't quite realize this because because I've um uh, I've skipped a lot of old movies in general in my life, which is a which is a downright shame of mine. Um, I fully but admit you've that. Watched but like, far um, too many 80s uh, movies, watching... 90s movies. <laughs> yeah, I do watch far too many 80s movies. Um, <laughs> no, but, he wasn't uh, one of the things that I realized while drawing Tyrone Power was the fact that like um he was a huge inspiration to comic book artists of the golden age. Uh, oh, so like really? you can see Tyrone Power in Captain Marvel, oh. in Bruce Wayne, in mm. uh, even Superman. Like like you can see the artist pulling from him because he does have such a great expressive face and those strong eyebrows. I mean, just mm-hmm. you know, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, going back looking at you know the 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 work of um, and I'm going to blank on everybody's name, um, mm-hmm. but 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 you know the work of those those uh, great Golden Age artists. Uh, mm-hmm. They really were pulling from uh, Tyrone Power a lot. So, you know, mm. just shout out to to them. A little thing I've noticed just, you know, um, mm-hmm. we don't have any examples. Sorry. Let's move on. <laughs> he uh, also was a very different type of actor than this. Mm-hmm. Like, that's an important thing to note that, like, this wasn't the kind of movie that he would do. Like, he's Absolutely. a dude that, like, went to the war. Like, he went and, to war. And like, he got he married did. for that reason. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For, for yeah. decades. Yeah. <laughs> People were not looking. It'd be like, you know, I, I don't know, like, the rock taking like uh doing like leaving las vegas absolutely like what, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah but, he did swatch think... bucklers he did he yeah did, you yeah know, but but i think wrong. that i think that now i mean i think that now one thing yeah. that um we have is we don't have the studio system necessarily i mean the studio system is kind of coming back in, in a way but you don't have the studio system where somebody finds an actor like zanuck mm-hmm. at uh at, at you know um at fox mm-hmm. finds his actor and like pulls them out from wherever they are and goes, listen, this is going to be your career. This is going to be your career, kid. Listen to me. Like, <laughs> and then, and then kind of maps out their career for them. They don't get much agency in it. And they kind of mm-hmm. um, push them into these stock roles. So mm-hmm. for um, Tyrone Power, that stock role was like the romantic lead. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Zanuck wouldn't hear of anything at all. Like you could build up enough, uh, you could build up enough clout and like, mm-hmm. um, I guess, social capital. And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously like monetary capital, but like social capital and like, whatever to kind of uh demand that your roles get switched a little bit mm-hmm. but it seems like this movie um came from Tyrone Power uh um like reading the book and saying this is a perfect way for me to kind of switch up what I've been doing because I don't just want to be a romantic lead forever this isn't a sustainable mm-hmm. uh career path for me and just deciding to do something totally opposite of that where he's just like the most despicable kind of scumbag mm-hmm. that's selling everybody a bill of goods conning them and and, and mm-hmm. you know and really and really pulling like um every single scam known to man mm-hmm. to the point where in doing my research um for this uh there's an eddie muller clip that i'll play later on where um he's talking about how uh con artists used to say um i'm a friend of stan carlisle like that was the way that they would uh say hey you can't like you can't get me with this scam i'm, <laughs> wow. I'm my own kind of scammer so this movie <laughs> took on a cult life after being uh-huh. released but a cult life through um through through scammers and hustlers mm-hmm. using that name to kind of point out, hey, I'm I'm one of you mm-hmm. um for, for decades before this film got resurfaced. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Tyrone Power seem, it, he really seems to come to life with this kind of role. He gets to play something semi-similar in Witness for the Prosecution, which is his last full role before he dies at 44. And he's again, he's 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 the long con. He's got to be completely charming, but there's got to be something kind of cheap and false about him. And then, yeah, he's he's the con artist. And by then, he looks like hell. He was an alcoholic, and is in his drinking. Yeah, he didn't need the really, eye makeup anymore. <laughs> he didn't even need the eye makeup. <laughs> because you know, think he was such a serious actor. He he had roots in like 
for generations back to Ireland. I forget 18th century Ireland or some damn thing with the first Tyrone power. So he really had a lot at stake in, in showing what a great actor he was. And he, you know, he's got to have been a frustrated guy. He clearly was. He even yeah. had the romantic case of, of ditching wives because they didn't have sons. He ditched two wives because they didn't have sons and he wanted a son to be the next Tyrone power. That's he didn't cheap. go deep. <laughs> he was. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I he mean, was really living through. He was really living through his own nightmare alley. There he was. He was doing his own nightmare alley. <laughs> <laughs> nightmare which, alley. Which, by the way, um, the the reason that the book I think was named Nightmare Alley was that in the book itself he has this recurring dream where he's being chased down an alley, and we don't get to hear. Never like, we don't get to see this. Yeah, yeah. it's never so in here. He kind of takes the name without actually um, explaining it. There's this recurring dream, and he realizes that like fear. Wait, I have a, I have the quote that I wrote down last night when I was listening to it. But he has the um, yeah, he has like this this dream about a dark alley that he's running through, and he says, uh, "Find out what they're afraid of and sell it back to them." How was the geek made? Fear. He was afraid of sobering up. But what mm -hmm. turned him into a drunk? Fear. And he's talking about how the thing that uh, audiences most want to see is something that they're afraid of. And then they want to be obviously kind of saved from it mm -hmm. um, and, and realize that it's something that's non-lasting. But if you can make people feel terrified in the moment, they'll hand mm -hmm. you money. So mm -hmm. he he kind of um, compares this to, this to his own dream that he has where he's being mm -hmm. chased down an alley and there's light at the end of the alley and it's yeah. like nightmare. And mm -hmm. there's this whole passage about it that just gets totally ignored by the movie. And they're like, you know, mm -hmm. Nightmare Alley, like the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Too bad because that would have been a great scene. I'm yeah, surprised. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be perfect noir. Wow. And, and there's plenty of like kind of like daring, cool noirish choices. But like, it, mm -hmm. it is funny that I never, never even occurred to me that like the title is just. Why is it yeah, it just sounded like a noiry title. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, yeah. supposedly, according to an old lady whose clip I watched the other day, he was, uh, he was by maybe, but you know, this I, I don't know if that was just like an older. Yeah, well, it was an old lady speculating and then going. I don't. This is one of the funniest clips I've seen researching for this show. Yeah, that, that's the best kind of Criterion Channel extras, isn't it? No, when they're speculating. <laughs> yeah, just, but you know, she's not the only one. It was there was a lot of speculation. Oh, Tons. No. You know, his I mean, best I'm, friend was Caesar Romero, who was yeah, yeah, the Joker, the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> who was known to be a quote unquote lifelong bachelor, and you know, everyone said he was gay. Fun loving yeah. guy. He was supposed to have had a, a, an affair with Errol Flynn. He was, you know, the word the word yeah. was sort of out in an underground. Now that's swashbuckling. That is some serious swashbuckling <laughs> energy there. Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to talk specifically for us about that one woman that on the right, mm -hmm. that, that one, her her theory. Her theory. <laughs> oh no! So it was just it was the Caesar Romero thing, and mm -hmm. she was talking about how they were best friends, and then mm -hmm. the clip takes a. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't save the clip because I was like, yeah, this is a little bit. You know, it's just some old lady speculating, but she she goes from going, oh, my sister dated um my sister dated him. And then mm -hmm. he, he was like, oh, they were hanging out a lot. And then I danced with Caesar Romero. And then he's like, and they were gay. They were gay <laughs> together. And I was like, what? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's like when you're old, when, I feel like when you're old enough and people are just like <laughs> filming your like old Hollywood stories, you can do that. And everyone's like. All right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah sure. I'm yeah. dead. Who cares? Yeah. I, I can't remember. I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was like one, there was this one interview thing where, um, I don't, I don't remember if it was, uh, no, it wasn't Stevie Wonder. It was the, it was a, oh, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones had an interview, um, towards the end of his life 
where he was just kind of like outing everybody that he knew. Oh, I think I read that. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. that's an incredible yeah. article. And actually, yeah, uh, the documentary on him is is quite fascinating as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's his daughter mm -hmm. helmed, and very mm -hmm. interesting just because he's an interesting dude in music. But yeah, that is a dude that, to put it bluntly, was out of fucks to give. Yeah, he's like yeah. all right, yeah. <laughs> you want to know? <laughs> well, and we gotta say, you know, it's not like you know, given that we're such contempo people that we don't care. But this, it's the secrecy and the fascination over the secret of living your yeah. whole life faking around and dating Lana Turner or whatever. And maybe you don't want to, you know, that's yeah. what keeps being the recurring fascination is, wow, how did you go your whole life without the just the urge to tell, to write the secret diary, to do something? <laughs> well, it's, I think yeah. I think it's I think it's also the fact that, you know, um, this whole life is mapped out for you, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, like, um, and we'll we'll see this um, in a clip that I have. The only real um, person that was left alive was Colleen Gray, who played Molly. Um, okay. One Criterion, and like, you know, when when uh, this movie was rediscovered by Eddie Muller, who I like a lot because I I got really fascinated by noir films because mm -hmm. I took a um, shout out to uh, my professor Greg Bray at New Paltz, okay. but he had a he had a study that we took where we watched mm -hmm. I think like fifteen noir movies in fifteen weeks. Wow. And it was called uh, uh, 90 Minutes to Die. It was a really fun class. Mm -hmm. But uh, Eddie Muller had written this this Dark City book, which ended up being the textbook for um, for for this class. And mm -hmm. he ended up being the one who resurfaced Nightmare Alley, I guess, mm -hmm. and, and was like the first person that was allowed to kind of play it on TV after mm -hmm. Fox had like very much kind of been like, listen, we want to forget this movie ever happened. We mm -hmm. don't want Tyrone Power looked at in this light. Because we've mm -hmm. kind of mapped out his whole career for him. And then obviously he died tragically young mm -hmm. and kind of, I think that took a toll on him more than just, I mean, you know, whatever uh, speculation anyone wants to have about his sexuality. It's mm -hmm. also you're, you're trapped in this in this box where, you know, um, somebody at a studio who isn't necessarily a creative mm -hmm. person and is just kind of deciding what movies are going to make money is mm -hmm. going, no, I don't think anything that you do that you actually want to do, any passion project is going to make mm -hmm. money. I want you to keep swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. Not like that, but I want you to keep <laughs> I want you to keep being the romantic lead. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we can't we can't do anything like you can't do anything else. And mm -hmm. the fact that you're under contract for you know, uh, like, and and if you're if if they reject that contract, suddenly you're out of work mm -hmm. and you're not going to get hired by anyone else because it's essentially a monopoly mm -hmm. um, that these studios have. So mm -hmm. I think that more than anything else probably really destroyed his, uh, you know, his his, his self esteem. I'm sure too. Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to play this because the central question, obviously, of this movie is how does a man become a geek? And mm -hmm. um, Criterion uh, couldn't find too many um, extras to, I think, mm -hmm. really include with with uh, with this movie because, you know, everyone had either passed away by this point mm -hmm. and Fox was burying it when it was around. So mm -hmm. there wasn't many like interviews on TV they got or like on the radio or anything. Mm -hmm. So they kind of had to um, scrape the bottom of the barrel with where they got their <laughs> content from. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they did is they interviewed a um, a carny like a, like a carny um, or a performer at one of the sideshows that mm -hmm. was kind of a historian that does mm -hmm. like of these sideshows and uh, I found it really fascinating. He has a, a like a two minute clip on how how a man becomes a geek. So I thought that would be an interesting mm -hmm. um, thing to play from like a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. And then you had the Gilly shows, which were the smaller shows that traveled by, in the early days, horse and wagon, and then later on by truck. And the reason they're called Gilly is because all the stuff would be loaded on a train, and then when you got into town, you'd hire wagons to bring it all out to the lot. 
And it was those kind of smaller units that were playing the small towns. They were a little more desperate. And that's where you have things like the Geek Act show up. Stronger acts playing for a less sophisticated audience. And the games often were completely fixed. And there was a, a little more of a criminal element in the operation. And it was those shows that kind of gave all carnivals and circuses a bad name. They're what is known as heat merchants because that's what they brought. And then dime museums were these permanent sideshows, not unlike the Ripley's, believe it or not, that we have today in various communities, except they have live performers in them in addition to the strange and unusual displays. And people would read about you know various parts of the world that they'd never be able to travel to. So the dime museums could bring little bits and pieces. They would have you know, rel relics from the Holy Land, uh, some real and some you know completely fake, depending upon the size and the quality of the show. And one of the acts was the wild men of Borneo, savages from South the Islands, cannibals. And they the more sensational you can make it, the more interesting. And they often were completely fake. And sometimes you want to take it further. It has been sort of lost to history. But someone had the idea of making them even more of a savage by biting the head off of a live chicken or some other animal, snakes, skinning a snake live with their teeth. And it was shocking. Now, the problem is, who wants to do that? So you either rely upon someone who's mentally deficient and doesn't know that that is a deplorable thing to do, or you rely upon someone who's sort of down and out. And you find yourself a drunk. And you say, no, listen, it's a fake act. You take in and you have a razor blade. And you pick up the animal and you scream and yell and you slit the throat and let the blood flow and you pretend to eat it. And if you'll do that, we'll pay you. You have a place to sleep. You'll have a, get a little money and all you can drink. And you put the bottle out there. And once they get comfortable doing that, you threaten to take the bottle away unless they do it for real. And they will. Damn. <laughs> I mean, like, I know all about that, but you hear it laid out like that is like, oh, geez. Yeah. And, and he's, I mean, he's sufficiently uncomfortable talking about it, which, you know, I'm sure because there are like, I mean, he, like, I, I watched the whole interview with him and there are like a lot of really, I mean, you know, everything about, I think, carnivals is kind of exploitative, but probably less so than we've, in some cases, than we've been led to believe in the sense mm -hmm. of like, you know, it's not like you could get a job as someone who has like a long criminal record and everything mm -hmm. else that people knew about it. Um, like, you know, less so in, in like the 1800s or the early 1900s, where people kind of talked and this stuff was like kind of everywhere. And the mm -hmm. carnival was kind of a non-judgmental atmosphere where if you showed up and you did your job and you know you were interested in being on stage and all of the stuff then people wouldn't really ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and you could actually make a decent living in a lot of cases um with like a comfortable place to sleep and food and you know mm -hmm. stuff provided and of course that wasn't always the case but like a lot of times it was and i think you know as as socialists like it probably is the most raw form of exploitation that you could possibly think of because mm -hmm. a lot of them also were like mentally deficient as he says and mm -hmm. going through severe mental illness and stuff but at the same time like 
yeah, this is going on at the same time that like the factory workers are like, you know what I mean? Like factory workers are, are, are mm. working in sweatshops that burn mm -hmm. down on a regular basis. And like, mm -hmm. so like, I don't know. So he kind of had a sympathetic air um, with a lot of that stuff. And then all of mm -hmm. a sudden, the second it got to that, he got incredibly uncomfortable because mm -hmm. it's an incredibly uncomfortable subject. Mm -hmm. um, and then like the, the few pictures they really have of geeks, a lot of times it's, it's you know, it, it's a black person because mm -hmm. those are people that are, you know, in the worst form of poverty at this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's rare to find, I mean, you, you can find like, you can find white geeks, but like a lot of times there's that racial element added. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not, and notice notice how in the movie they keep they keep him off in shadow the, the 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 geek you don't see the first one you know you you don't the first one is always off either he's screaming and yeah you know, suffering from the DTs or some form of you know mental you know uh, you know break um, but he's always off in shadow so you can't quite get a full look at him shrouded in mystery kind of yeah. away from everyone else and, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. going to say I'm going to say probably suffering from DTs because they do mm -hmm. say early on, which is the thing that connects it to the great Stanton as a character. Yeah. Um, later on, they say, oh, he used to be on, on top of the charts. And right. and by the way, fuck you for that comment, Conan. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I think that so I'm going to probably say it was, you know, it was a severe form of alcoholism yeah. that he was suffering from because. I, yeah. I think that you know to get to the top of the charts, it probably is a story a lot like uh, you know the Great Stand story. But mm. I mean, but I don't think it necessarily was in all cases. And no, um, but it seems clear in the movie that that's, yeah. that's the pattern. Well, and it's like he, in it's a, alcoholics. What yeah. do you call it? Like a an Ouroboros, like the the infinity thing. Like mm -hmm. it, it like links the beginning and the end in mm -hmm. a way that like I didn't actually catch it first. I was like, oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to see them do a creative like film noir is sort of known for that for that doom getting the feeling of doom and fadedness through flashback structures. So you start with a guy on death row or you start yeah. with, you know, William Holden already dead in the swimming pool, but yeah. still narrating yeah. or whatever. Right, totally. And then loop around. But in Which this is another movie that we uh, that we covered on oh, the show yeah. and had a had a had a good time with. Um, yeah, that is a good one. Um, but this one just keeps having all all of these, you know, just Stan's fascination with the geek that he doesn't even understand. And there's so many recurring patterns, the tarot cards, all the rest of it, to tell you, you know exactly where it's going, or at least I think you can pick it up. The, the yeah. sense of foreboding. Well, there's also this, there's, a, there's an Icarus. I mean, it's kind of the Icarus thing, right? Mm. Like he flew too, too uh, yeah. high and kind of, um, mm. you know, bounced off the sun in this case. Like, <laughs> because, you know, that last, that last, the last line, line where yeah. he's like, you know, how does a guy get so, get so low? Mm. And he's like, oh, well, he aimed too high. Mm -hmm. And it, I think in this case, there's that double meaning where he aimed too high as he literally aimed to replace God. And I don't think mm -hmm. that that was necessarily um, what the, what the book itself was trying to imply because, mm -hmm. you know, it was written by like a lifelong skeptic who was um, deeply interested in spiritualism. But Very. also, um, but also, <laughs> was, well, was also just Lewis. Too, yeah, well, he was also just too too mm -hmm. cynical to uh, mm -hmm. to really to really ever get into spiritualism. So it's funny, I guess his work. Are you like, sure? Like, From maybe we're reading different sources, but I read that this maddening alteration. He was so desperate. The poor guy. He's a paranoid. He's got tuberculosis. He's an alcoholic. He, you know, he's mentally tormented to the point that he can't stand it. And I, the thing I read was he he would try anything. <laughs> he yeah, tried well, dianetics. Well, he yeah, tried. no, he, he was an early, he was, he was an Yoga. early, um, he was an Psychoanalysis. early, an early, uh, Scientologist. Yeah. He, but then also spent his time debunking that. But you're right. Um, he would debunk wanted, on the, with, 
yeah. in your hand. Yeah. So, so he desperately wanted to find something that he felt like he could believe in and then mm. kind of would get to that point and realize, you know, cynically it's that full. everything. Yeah. So his life was kind of spent in that. And it, and it mm. kind of, I mean, he, he died of cancer of the tongue at mm. a, um, and he committed suicide because oh. that wasn't going to yeah. get any better. But um, he was also going blind. He also yeah. had a recurrence of tuberculosis. So he was dying of like yeah. three things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, if you're going to, I guess if you're going to off yourself, that probably like is the yeah. time to do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 But if we, if I just real quick on the, on that main point of like, you know, that line, like I think there's a very clear moment in the movie mm -hmm. where it's like, like a serial killer or something like you could stop. You could mm -hmm. stop right now. Like you've made a good living for yourself, but no, he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go mm -hmm. for the big fish. I'm going mm -hmm. one more. And everyone's like, uh maybe don't maybe mm. don't do that and he's like nah i got this yeah and he's he got yeah it's the escalating <laughs> contempt he already starts off with it like yeah. he, i like it i like it because why does he like circus life because you know you're not one of the yokels <laughs> yeah you get to look at why them and feel superior and gamble away their life savings right it's yeah. the same thing you feel yeah. like oh well you know, I can't possibly lose at this point. I've won too much. Uh -huh. like, well, that's not yeah. Really <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he he seems to be so he seems to be so um firm in this belief throughout the movie mm -hmm. that he's uh he's better than all these people. Yeah, and he's absolutely. kind of looking down at them and he's like, Oh, I know the secret tricks and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But he ends up playing himself over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's trusting the uh the the you know, the psychiatrist, which I think mm -hmm. is pretty hilarious that they're kind of saying, Well, is psychoanalytic like the better con psych <laughs> and you know than, than being a than being a mentalist which i think is mm. panned out that it is but it is a it is kind of a yeah. hilarious thought because there still are a lot of like you know a lot of like older people that they they hear about psychiatry and they're like oh that's just another con like that's just you know mm -hmm. you're just gonna go yeah. for it so it's like it is that that's like that thought kind of um mm. embodied in this character who mm -hmm. at but, first but you see yeah I was just going to say, but like, like, look at like how he uses psychological tactics. Like when he mm -hmm. like hustles the cop, basically giving him like all of like the mm -hmm. church going rhetoric that he learned, like in the orphanage. Right. Mm -hmm. Like th things like that. Like mm -hmm. it's, it, that's all part of the con. So he just assumes that like the, you know, the, the woman he meets like, Oh, well, this is like a different kind of con. And it's sort of like for him, it's a game respect game. Yeah. Kind of thing at first. Yeah. yeah. And he can't believe someone's going to be a better con artist. Certainly yeah, it's no, true with no, her, but yeah. even his, his face when Pete cons him, he does the whole thing about a boy and his dog. And he's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, his, dog, his name is Jip. <laughs> and he's like, every boy has a dog, which of course isn't really true. If you'd met a city boy who never ran barefoot in the hills, you'd be in bad shape. But clearly the kind of carnival it is, it's rural. It's yeah. kind of like the guy who describing the geek show. It's out farther out. It's third rate, carn you know, carny stuff. You could count on your audience being probably pretty small town and rural and all that. But the look on Stan's face for yeah. a moment when he first gets he, like he gets he becomes a sucker is like that's the worst thing <laughs> that can happen yeah, to yeah. you yeah there's there's a really there's a really um kind of honestly beautiful for the time i think mm -hmm. um and but also extremely depressing part of the book where they go into the deep south mm -hmm. and stan is is clearly um in incredibly uncomfortable with the racial segregation going on in the deep south mm -hmm. and there's like this vivid kind of uh description that he has of that's when the noir dream comes in like the nightmare alley dream mm -hmm. um where he's talking about how you know racism for them and you know like like white people um kind of chasing them like mm -hmm. like black people in the south like the deep south like the, the most uh you know backwards part i guess in his mind of the south mm -hmm. um you know that that kind of racial segregation for them is the same thing for him as that alley dream where people are chasing him and he realizes mm -hmm. 
that that fear is something um, inherent in everybody. And like, so there's, there's a moment where they really like touch on segregation and mm -hmm. use that uh, Carney mentality before talking about how, you know, they, they're just kind of playing black mm -hmm. and white, everybody like, you know, the mm -hmm. same and like taking their money because they're all rubes. Like before that part mm -hmm. of it, he's kind of connecting um, his own fear about things to segregation and like, there's like a kind of profound passage about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then also there's a profound passage about how um, he realizes that like what he considers Carney dialect is actually like a mix of all of these, like Carney's having to adapt to everywhere they go, whether it's the South or, you know, the Midwest mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. really anywhere. And like having to actually co-op that language so that people mirroring. trust them more. They, call, mm -hmm. they yeah. call it mirroring, right? Linguistical mirroring. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So he, he realizes that like the dialect that he's hearing isn't a, like is actually something far more intelligent and like sophisticated in some ways than like a, a regular dialect because it actually is a, a, a mix of all of these different things that they oh. picked up in order to like better like appeal train everywhere. Their, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a really it's a fascinating book. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah. he's like I really should write about him for Jacobin. I mean he's this he's a communist. He fought the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. His wife before she went yeah, on the, the correct was you, always, you always have to look you always have to double check yeah. the, the royalist the royalist side or like you know yeah, which side I know which side the loyalist side yeah 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 I know let's make sure against Franco and it's like all right yeah right, the correct <laughs> side when, of the Spanish when a German <laughs> friend says their great grandparents were in the war it's like Oh, mm. <laughs> they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the ally side. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and you just have to wonder if it's part of his torment. <laughs> like, you know, they don't really list that as one of the things beyond insomnia and alcoholism and everything else. But he's he's a suffering communist going through, you know, the early to mid 20, 20th century. It's not so hot. Yeah. What goes? I I, I think that um. I mean, I mean, really profoundly, this book, or mm -hmm. the book and the movies, tackle exploitation in a way that's mm -hmm. incredibly hard for, like, you know, show business. I think in general is is somewhere where you can see the most naked, like naked, no pun intended, form of um, exploitation because mm -hmm. you know there's obviously studio executives pressuring women to be in right. movies and take more and more clothes off, and there's mm -hmm. you know there's all of these different ways, like you know, the, I mean, pornographic or like, you know, sexually explicit video happening at that time or mm -hmm. shows on stage, vaudeville, like all of these things are kind of the most, um, kind of the most easy to understand forms of exploitation. But mm -hmm. even for that, I feel like this movie was incredibly complex with the layers of exploitation that it really mm -hmm. included within it um, mm -hmm. as, a, as like a real uh, villainous issue throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's not, and it's not being like objectively moralistic about it either, mm -hmm. or just like presenting, which is interesting because again, this is a code film, right? So they're they're mm -hmm. walking a fine line where mm -hmm. they're already taking like you know, like like the Captain America of his day and like making him be this real disreputable grifter, mm -hmm. and and then by the same token, like they're they're got all this other stuff. They, there's like obviously there's spiritualistic elements to it, mm -hmm. you know. Like there's all kinds of other things that they're just trying to get over with this at a time that like that just really wasn't happening. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not like it's you know hacks on or anything along those lines. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's pretty edgy stuff for its time. So mm -hmm. to like have all that be put together in a package like this, I think that's pretty wild to me. I, I love I love him the scene of him conning the the completely obviously corrupt cop. Oh, yeah. you know, yeah. the bully, bully comp. That's just a gorgeous bit. And there's the weirdest moment. I don't know if you guys noticed it. I've watched it too many times, maybe. But there's a scene early on where he's buttoning himself into a policeman's uniform. He's even got a badge on. And they never follow it up. Yeah. It's clearly Whatever. his, 
Average yeah. Tuesday, you know. <laughs> it's clearly related, you know, to some act he does or something he does. I even wonder if they somehow had a fake cop hanging around for some reason because it looked more respectful. But it's not there. It's just Tyrone Power buttoning himself into a cop uniform while he talks to Xena or something. Yeah, yeah. It's just like an incidental thing. And, yeah, and by the way, yeah. Robert Mitchum, Night of the Hunter, probably one of my favorite uh, movie Me villains too. of all time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he's like an er, he was an early stripper, like you know what I mean. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> random. You have no original hot cop. But let's talk about the kind of the very unusual thing, you know, fucking little before the show started about how the femme fatale figure is is handled and the and the women are handled and the and the way his character is the the one who's using sexuality more than anyone in the film, which is very unusual, making him a kind of alm fatale, if you will. Yeah, um, no, it, 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 it turns that on its head. It definitely yeah. turns that on its head. He's he's kind of the, the sexually dangerous one. And yeah. then the woman who kind of uses sexuality the least, although she does obviously proposition him in, in the masculine mm -hmm. role in that sense, is mm -hmm. a psychiatrist. But mm -hmm. it also doesn't seem like she's using her sexuality yeah. um, as part of her psychiatry, it does mm -hmm. seem like she's kind of trying to seduce him, getting close to him the same way that he would be trying to seduce her, getting close to her. It's like that, you know, mm -hmm. the spy versus spy type thing. But, right. it <laughs> but but it never quite it never quite hits that hits a level where it feels like yeah. um, she's treated as like a sexual character. Right. It's weird. So, they so got her the all they've got her all buttoned up into what would have then been read as mannish suits. Yeah. They don't look like yeah. now to us, but then it would have. It's weird. It's very unusual. Did, did the she is book go into detail what was on the uh, on the records? Did, did the book go into that? Because maybe she did use sexuality. Oh, in the in the book, she records. definitely a hundred percent does. Yeah. She completely seduces okay. him and and enslaves him sexually. Yeah, absolutely. I, did, I didn't get to that part. I got to the like and the it's on record. Part of the, him. I read it many so many years ago. I can hardly remember, but I can still remember his his sexual obsession. There's there's a really daring. Um, you know, just piece of prose where there's no end to a sentence that goes on for pages because he's in such thrall that he just is obsessing on her for pages. I can't use any punctuation. Page. I can't. I, stop. Yes, punctuation goes away. <laughs> yeah, it's like Hubert um, Selby Jr. or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's really effective for just conveying he's like mesmerized by her sexually, and they just all but remove it from the movie, which is which not is at weird. all necessary. You you would almost expect that you in a yeah film like this, in right? every almost every other film noir that's famous there's a total all out sexualized using her sexual wiles yeah. femme fatale and here they restrain all that and make Zena the one this is the opening shot of Stan we see from Zena's point of view staring at him yeah as the only, you have your noir the other, bingo card it's like totally unfulfilled with that absolutely yeah. <laughs> the, only, the the other movie that I feel like kind of um. Uh, I guess I, I don't want to say demasculize demasculizes or something, but kind mm -hmm. of um, treats a, a man kind of like the femme fatale in a mm -hmm. lot of ways is uh, double indemnity. I feel like is the mm -hmm. only other one I can really think of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you mean beating but even, beating out Barbara Stanwyck is Phyllis Diedrichson. You mean you think the Fred McMurray guy is? Well, no, but uh, but like in some way, like he's the <laughs> one that's kind of going along, kind of enthralled by people and trying mm -hmm. to use that. To like, he's the one that comes up with all, like a lot of the the, the right um, things. He needs the that. salesman you know, always pitching, yeah. And selling. Yeah. So yeah. it seems like that. That's kind of I, I vibes early, an early form of 
what they ended up doing in this movie mm-hmm. um, from something like that, mm-hmm. where he's kind of, he kind of puts himself in a lot of these weird situations where he, like, it's almost like pornographic situations where he shows up at the house and he's like, oh, I'm here to <laughs> yes. sell you something. But, but I mean, that movie yeah. still, he was, you know, they, they were the femme, like, we were led to believe later on that she was the femme fatale kind of leading uh-huh. him into further and further. Right. This movie seems like it, does, it doesn't stop at that point and then reverse uh-huh. the roles. It just right. continuously treats him like the femme fatale. Right, um, right. I can, I can give you a couple of recommendations if you're into the homme fatale. There's a couple of movies. <laughs> One's called Raw Deal. It actually has a woman doing the voiceover narration about wow. her obsession with the man. And then there's one called They Won't not Believe Me. Not the one with Schwarzenegger. <laughs> no, not that one. Um, okay. It's got, um, who is that? I can't even remember. God damn it. <laughs> and then there's Andy, one what, called- did, what did you what did you think about the line? Um, wait, send me send me those. But what what did okay. you think about the line where um, I, I just I instantly thought of you where uh, the psychiatrist sitting there and she's like, we call that total recall. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. I was just uh, it gave me flashbacks to uh, college when I was playing Arnold Schwarzenegger in a play and uh, forgot my line and uh, didn't have said I didn't have any total recall. Uh, famous famous play character. Play okay. <laughs> <laughs> I played strength in every man, so you know. Oh, okay, <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> I, well, I I also just want to say, you know, since we're talking about other noirs, like I'm mm. so into noir, I'm actually drinking a Pinot Noir. Thank you very much. Wow. Oh, um, wow! I'm fancy like that. <laughs> mm. Uh, but Eileen, how do you feel as like, I, I, I guess this is technically a neo-noir because it's not like strict film noir. I don't know all the sub-genres or categories. I just like the films. But like this versus like In a Lonely Place or something. Where this isn't neo-noir. No, neo is for, for later noir post the initial phase. Okay. So that's usually starting in the late 60s on. Sort of depends on where people want to place. I mean, clearly it's carny noir, and we—it's certainly I mean, carny noir. <laughs> um, well, the first, the first, uh, the first technical um, neo noir is Breathless, I think, because um, it's the first postcode. I think it's the first postcode. Really, noir. Well, point like, Point Blank is that maybe that is later. Point, you know, when the one with Lee Marvin. Because they well, because I think Breathless was 1960, so it's just as the. Code oh, you're right. Ends. That's weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's yeah, just as the code ends. And noir mm. kind of takes off in France as like a a, a method of creating um, like like you know mm. what I mean like okay film because they like a lot of French critics were like big fans of the early noir movies Definitely. and they wrote about it incessantly yeah. but like mm-hmm. when when that kind of takes off I, I I mean maybe this maybe this class is wrong about it but um, no but it's I, a good theory they we had like a we had like a neo noir. Uh, two sessions and, and reading like that book by Eddie Muller, mm-hmm. who was, mm-hmm. you know, um, who kind of is the, the guy from um, Turner classic movies who did the entire like noir show where he mm-hmm. like would bring them back. So he, he considers, I think that the cutoff point because the, mm-hmm. um, cause you know, psycho kind of killed, like killed the last of the Hayes code. And mm-hmm. since it was 1960, it was kind of the same uh, time period. Well, it was not the, the last right? of, I mean, the Hayes code is only officially 86 in, it's like roughly 66, 67 when they replace it. But it's certainly getting weaker and weaker and weaker. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so two things. First of all, I love Breathless. The idea mm-hmm. of it being remotely close to a noir never even crossed my mind. But in <sighs> retrospect, makes sense. I just like the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's Another... dedicated to Monogram Studios. It's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's various clues. That, I, 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 I get it. I get it. But like it's it's that, that thought never uh, caught mm. my attention. But I, when I think of this, I think of this as some somewhat kind of a... Uh, mm-hmm. 
a certain so maybe it's not neo-noir maybe there's another name for it maybe not but like mm-hmm. it's clearly noirish but it doesn't mm-hmm. follow the exact noir tropes and i bring up in a lonely place because it's mm-hmm. the same thing it's like he's not a detective humphrey bogart's a screenwriter right and like they they kind of like mix up some of like the tropes of some of the things while hitting like the 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 big feels and mm-hmm. overtones and you know some of the other things and i think that that's those are I, for whatever reason those tend to be like my favorites of these kinds of movies the mm-hmm. one that kind of turn it on, on its head a little bit. And I was wondering, Eileen, if you had any other examples of that or what your thoughts on that? Oh, Tom, I mean, the part of the problem with film noir, which is one of the boring aspects of all the film scholarship on it, is you have to spend most of the time trying to define film noir. <laughs> um, it's the biggest, baggiest, messiest, sloppiest genre. Some people won't even admit it's a genre. You get into these ridiculous conversations. Is it a mode? Like, it's is like it fascism is it that, that way. Yeah. It's hey. <laughs> so you get, supposedly you get these subcategories and there's, so there's the private detective version of noir. And then there's the ones, and there's tons of them where, and, I, and you're right. I think they seem more dangerous because there's no figure who's the figure that even in a kind of backhanded way represents the law or order. Yeah. You get rid of that person and it's just can be a real free for all that it seems more the wilder and often more fascinating and darker noir. So there's tons of those um, where it's just a person who either gets gets fall, you know, goes down the wrong side street and falls into crime and yeah. their life life is ruined, like in Scarlet Street. Or it's someone who suddenly gets us what he thinks is a bright idea, like in Double Indemnity. Or it can, it can, there's so many ways you can suddenly trip and fall and everything is destroyed. It's one of the things I love about noir. Yeah, it's, like it's just wrong step and all hope is abandoned. Step. And boy, you're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What Which, do you, you know, seems, seems yeah. about right. <laughs> that seems realistic. No, but what do, you, what do you think about, what do you think about, um, so I think like kind of the heyday of neo-noir is like the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the 60s are obviously when it starts, but like, you know, a, a lot of neo-noir movies have kind of come out in the 70s mm-hmm. and, and early 80s. But like there's this kind of um, sy- systemic failure, I guess, of all of our institutions mm-hmm. that kind of is the same thing that happens in the lead up and aftermath of World War II, right. where, you know, the Great Depression has happened. It seems like people aren't really necessarily trusting that the government has their best interests. Um, people aren't necessarily trusting that law enforcement has their best interests. People mm-hmm. are seeing all of these institutions as fully corrupt. Mm-hmm. And um, noir kind of comes out of that, like, mm-hmm. especially in the 50s. And, you know, you have McCarthyism, you have all these things, and it's kind of building up this. Um, and I mean, you know, you have the pulp novels before that, too, in like 1920s, where mm-hmm. it feels like uh, capitalism has fully failed. And, mm-hmm. you know, our financial institutions have failed. Our government systems have failed. And then you have a similar kind of, um, I mean, with Watergate, with, uh, you know, with with the, um, you know, like the, the CIA hearings with, um, you know, um, all of these different like um, things where you've realized that like, you know, corruption is rampant and mm-hmm. every system has failed. It's kind of a mirroring of those two things, I think. And I mean, yes. that starts in the 60s, too, with with LBJ mm-hmm. kind of being um, the first president that everyone's kind of like, oh, no, this guy's fucking lying to us. Like, <laughs> right. He's lied right. us into a war. Mm-hmm. So these mirroring of these two um, mm-hmm. moments where things have kind of fallen apart brings back these like movies based on pulp novels pretty mm-hmm. much where mm-hmm. that are about systemic failure. Um, I don't know. I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Oh, I, I completely agree. It's, it's, you know, it's a cult and it can be confusing for some because you, like the fifties, which if you just take a kind of pop history view of the fifties, 
isn't that the stable, prosperous era? Everyone gets to be in the middle class and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's yeah. A, he still has this huge hangover. And, and the World War II being a good war where everyone comes out all jolly also you know, part of the part of pop history mm, that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, so yeah, this this collapse that that is almost an ongoing or a constantly recurring collapse with you know interludes of where noir doesn't seem as relevant and then it comes back definitely. But what I like about the whole now you can't rely on anything. You can't rely the cops the the, the <laughs> everyday people are crooked the cops are crooked the systems of government are crooked everything's crooked and you literally have film noir that are about that like there's nowhere to go that isn't hopelessly fallen but you we go even further in certain film noir and i think nightmare alley is one of them where there's a there's a creepy edge of horror suggestion that there's something cosmically wrong it goes beyond humanity. yeah yeah, I didn't, so, I didn't. I didn't even yeah. think of that, but yeah, one hundred percent. So there's a strain. Sometimes it's called horror noir or gothic noir. There's all sorts yeah. of different names, and then they dredge up all the ones that have something so doomy that it seems to go beyond the ordinary uh, experience of human. It goes into some sort of supernatural or occult or cosmic realm and it's still bad it's still like a dark god if there's a god it's and he hates us <laughs> you know it's that kind of thing um and and that's where i really like i that's one of my favorite places to be in noir is where it's it's there's a brooding sense and you'll have scenes dedicated it or even plots if you see a, a one called night has a thousand eyes it takes again the character of the phony the phony psychic the phony spiritualist act um, and it has Edward G. Robinson, and he, literally in the middle of his phony mentalist or, or psychic act, he becomes really psychic. But the only thing he can see is how everyone he's dealing with is going to die. So it's beautifully morbid right. noir um, that rides exactly that line that, that it seems like um, less insistently uh, Nightmare Alley does, where Xena's cards keep being sort of uncomfortably close to something true and the suggestion that there's something dark and brooding and horrible that has an edge of the supernatural that they don't make much of. They just sort of let it lie there as an uneasy making aspect of such a bleak worldview. So that's among my favorite things. So, and there was a, something in the comments uh, mm. specifically about Sin City. I actually was going to mm. bring up both Frank Miller and James Elroy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that both of those dudes, I think, are great writers that I would not want to hang out with, <laughs> right. let alone talk politics with. <laughs> uh, but I mean, not exactly, yeah, not, not, not exactly uh, humanists <laughs> or progressives necessarily. Right. Uh, but uh, that said, yeah. I mean, I think Frank Miller's mellowed. So, so I'll give him credit for that. But, oh, but, but no. um, yeah. You know, we well, have a yellowed have a, from from what from, from almost fascist from, from because 9 11. Wow. Well, you, have, you, you have a similar, a similar, dynamic you did a reverse between, mammoth. Go ahead, between oh. like Frank Miller and like Mickey Splain, right? Like, in some ways, I mean, uh -huh. just this incredibly, yeah. I mean, who really was the king for a while of uh, and I don't just say that because he lived in Newburgh 20 minutes from me, but um, for, his, <laughs> for a lot of his life, but um, <laughs> Mickey Splain kind of was the reactionary king of pulp novels for yeah. a really fucking long time. And we started this, you know, we started this podcast with uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, as a movie that Mickey Splain fucking hated. But, oh, really? but uh, yeah, no, Mickey Splain despised Kiss Me Deadly, but like uh -huh. was the movie was the movie that I wanted to start this, um, this podcast with because I think there's been a lot of uh, leftist cinema that's come out in the last, you know, uh, in the last 
few years that's been really amazing. But like, mm-hmm. you know, to give credit where it's due with Kiss Me Deadly, like to really have like the 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 nuclear bomb, like the you know, or the atom bomb in the center of this, uh, <laughs> like of this box. You know, great was really, it? I love it. <laughs> yeah, and and to really have that as almost like a red herring for yeah. throughout a lot of the movie because they're really just trying to figure out what the fuck it is. <laughs> it's kind of like is kind of amazing to me. And episode one of this podcast mm-hmm. ended up we didn't really quite know formatting at this point, so it mm-hmm. ended up being a three hour conversation. Oh my god! <laughs> but but uh, you know we've we've gotten I think a little bit better now with stuff, but you know it it. But that is like what we started with, and that kind of is like a um like a, like a, I think for me a pinnacle of of noir, like mm-hmm. this satirical, um because I think that movie kind of led to Doctor Strangelove and mm-hmm. like you know really amazing cinema like that, and mm-hmm. so I, I think that there's a lot of different um ways that like this pulp novelization can be taken, but mm-hmm. it is it is quite amazing to me that you know so much of it is based on um, pulp novels, which kind of veer in a lot of different directions mm-hmm. and then we talk about how noir veers in a lot of different directions for the same reason because mm-hmm. pulp novels can be like this kind of um almost like comical uh look at like horror horror characters mm-hmm. before horror movies were really something that people focused on mm-hmm. or they can be a private detective kind of going around and solving crimes or a full mm-hmm. system failure and it really has no boundaries to what the, these novels can be and they can be incredibly you know sexually explicit because you're just kind mm-hmm. of buying them and people are just kind of reading them like, oh, well, this is 10 cents. I'll buy it for mm-hmm. that reason. And mm-hmm. kind of reading it like you would like 50 shades of gray or something. So mm-hmm. the fact that it can veer in so many different directions um, it really, really interests me in terms of what noir ends up kind of being as a mm-hmm. genre. Mm-hmm. And there's just something so, yeah, I don't know. It's, there's something inherently thrilling about marrying the tawdry and, and when you could say realistic with the, something of a huge scale in its implications um and it's in its even its shall we say dark philosophy to get those two things together seems kind of mind exploding in a way as opposed to kind of knowing when you go into i don't know it's an important art film and it's going to have a philosophical take and then you're all prepped for it and it seems like yeah yeah you get what you what you were was advertised with film noir you're mostly thinking tawdry <laughs> Usually B movie, usually low down and sexy yeah. and all that other stuff, and then to get these kind of scenes of kind of pulp philosophy and pulp, even religiosity and cosmic thinking is what. Now you're you just sound like describing Roadhouse, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is all right. Roadhouse Part Three. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is my personal weakness. I, I like it when it's 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 bringing things that are together that seem really confounding and not what you're expecting. And if you don't have knee jerk snob contempt for it, you're going to get a fabulously rich experience that you might well, not get any other way. Yeah. I think there's a real like proletariat ennui kind mm-hmm. of beauty to a lot of these films. Absolutely. Right? You know? How gorgeous. I mean, yeah. film noir is just this challenge to anyone with gifted visually and <laughs> especially um, so even at the Z level budget, you know, you've got people who are trying to bust up to C and B level. So they're killing themselves doing cinematography that is sensational. Yeah. And, you know, this one, this movie, I have to say, is a little quieter than a lot of the flashier noir. And I'm sure if you're thinking, if you just dealt with Kiss, Kiss Me Deadly, you probably perhaps thought the same. Is like, There's certainly flashier 
um, film noir. But this one is has a kind of insidious quality that I like. It's it's quieter. You have to watch it a, a couple of times to realize, you know, even though it's not being as showy as say a Fritz Lang film or something, it's got a ton of entrapping you know, uh, production design that you have to kind of, you don't see in, in at, at first. You, there's shadow play that oh, isn't as dramatic yeah. as, as the signature look of a lot of noir. But well, one, yeah, I mean, but one, one amazing example is uh, Naked City, right? Like the, mm. they literally had like Ouija doing, doing the, yeah. uh, like doing some of the really amazing cinematography that just mm -hmm. didn't really need to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of just, just kind of, trying to get like this this movie with the you know with like a, a b movie plot into like a, a full um mm -hmm. thing that you know they're like there's like there's six million people in in in, in the city and here's a story of just a couple like you know what i mean like <laughs> didn't really need to get to that level but it right. does seem like it's almost like art photography um masquerading as noir film in a lot of that, cases absolutely i think that's absolutely right you see it in so and, many and I, cases i do want to shout out just uh, mm. since we're talking about good cinematography, um, mm -hmm. Border Incident, which I think is is mm. um, John Alden, right? Fabulous. I don't remember. Um, I think that's him. Yeah. Uh, I just know Ricardo Montalban's in it. Yes. And, and <laughs> guys from All My Children was playing a Mexican. Okay. Um, yeah, probably. Palmer, yeah, I don't remember. Palmer Chandler, I think. I can't remember the character's name from All My Children. My mom used to watch it, my grandmother. So, like, you know, I grew up, you know, you know how it is. Like, like you know, I was it, at All My it, Children house. Is it worse or better than Charlton Heston playing a Mexican? Um, no, it's Ricardo Montal. It's Ricardo Montalban who's who's is no, it, Ricardo Montalban plays the cop, and then his He's best friend is a white guy. He's a white who's dude. playing a Mexican. Okay, um, is that what it is? Like, All right, I forgot. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, and, and, because and, Touch of Evil, because Touch of Evil is considered like the prestige yeah. level of yeah. noir that will ever exist, and it's Charlton Heston playing a Mexican. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that opening single shot is just right, right. as yeah. referenced in the player, which we mm -hmm. did for the uh, movie night extravaganza. This is Revolution crossover, mm -hmm. which that was a fun episode. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was a really fun episode. All right, and, and like Dean Stockwell, yeah. our. Our friend, oh, yes. our ally, uh -huh. <laughs> our comrade. <laughs> if, if I mean, to be honest, he what like yeah. you know? He, I mean, he's talking about ozone depletion back when you know, like people were like not getting made fun of by Dennis yeah. Miller, which yeah. I really wish Sam Cedar had just come in and just. Oh damn! Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a pretty amazing clip, actually. Wow! Uh, what episode was that? On? Was that a, a Paris, Texas? Yeah, that was Paris, Texas. Okay. Wow, you covered uh, the water. Dean Stockwell rock. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before <laughs> yeah. we go too far away from this, uh -huh. we talk about cinematography. I just mm -hmm. want to give a shout out to the man, uh, Roger Deakins. And I was mm -hmm. thinking to myself, like, has he ever done a noir? Because that's someone that, like, I mean, 1917. Well, he's done a lot of yeah. Coen Brothers. Because he does of. so many Coen Brothers films. So he yeah. starts with yeah. Barton Fink, right? right, right. So, yeah. Which is my favorite Coen Brothers film, by the way. Oh. And yeah. there's uh, also Prisoners by the mm -hmm. uh, by uh, Dennis Villanueva who's uh, also just a dune um mm -hmm. and i think like in a way like no country for old men absolutely is noir right like if you yes. think about it from terms of like even just the source material and and like just you know what, what are you movie, saying which is a movie that kind of is referenced hard by dune if you think about uh mm -hmm. you know like Oh, by nature yeah. of Brolin and uh, yeah. oh yeah, and, and, and Oscar Isaac, and, where they're still, not Oscar where Isaac, they're, um, yeah. Where, oh, go ahead. No, they're still kind of enemies in Javier Dune. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah, still enemies right. in Dune. Where 
By the way, I watched uh, I watched Dune the first time my mom came with me uh, to the theater, and I it was like we had like this really funny conversation where I was like, "That's Javier Bardem," and I was right. like, "Remember old, No Country for Old Men?" And she's like, "She's like, no, what are you talking about?" And I showed her that scene, and she was like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it looked like they he, he it's funny because they're kind every, of he was asking everybody like how much they lost in the, ever lost in the coin toss it was pretty obvious but yeah it, it's <laughs> almost like they're giving each other like the simpsons baby side eye <laughs> right, like, right. As, as like an in joke or <laughs> something right. right but no what, what i was gonna say is of course like i wasn't gonna mention the coen brothers because I, mm -hmm. I was gonna leave that for other folks to do because of course mm -hmm. there's coen brothers uh usage their but favorite genre pretty yeah, much of course. Yeah. yeah shocking yeah. right yeah. uh but yeah. prisoners which again i'm a big uh dennis fan that like i think prisoners is absolutely a modern noir and it, mm -hmm. it doesn't but the thing is it doesn't look like a modern noir like mm -hmm. it's lit completely differently but if you think about it in terms of uh, and um like what it is, like the sort of like just dark ruination of the human soul sort of element, like, mm -hmm. and the fact that like, spoiler alert, it doesn't end nicely for anyone either <laughs> too. Like, I think it totally fits in the genre. So I was thinking about in terms of like, oh, has he ever done, you know, oh, Roger Deakins, I wonder if he's, and it's like, oh, he's done like tons of them. Cause yeah. I mean, he's the master of lighting. He mm -hmm. made that 1917 movie worth watching. That's, that was just that kid running around for three hours getting oh, shot at. <laughs> Yeah. But it's beautiful. It looks awesome. Or Skyfall. God, Skyfall was gorgeous. That was all Deacons. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a shout out to Roger Deacons. Come on the show. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and can, can we get a little love for Bill Pope, too? Just, just saying. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, Hell yeah. Because uh, <laughs> he actually did do some, uh, you know, uh, The Crow, if I remember correctly, was his. And so was Dark mm -hmm. City, which are mm -hmm. definitely film like Lars. You know, you could argue that they're noirs, and and I'll I'll, I'll fight that fight. But uh, mm. you know, uh, definitely visually borrowed heavily for, from uh, film noir. Well, and, it's almost like um, the comics were in clearly inspired by noir, and then the mm, movies cool. like are referencing the comic. So it's almost you know, yeah. But, but which comics... makes it, I mean, which makes it an interesting circle, right? Because I feel like um, along with pulp novels, like mm -hmm. comics were some of the first noir you know, um, works. tinged, yeah, mm -hmm. like works of, works of literature. Mm -hmm. So, like, to, ha to have it kind of continuously be this this uh, circle that goes into itself is, is mm -hmm. interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Detective Comics, Batman, I mean. Yeah, you know, no, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it helps if you think of film, I mean, it's it's hard to define film noir, it really is, because, again, it move, it's got so much sources and, and so much sourcing and so much circular relationship to other other forms and i don't know it's spread over so much time by now with noir if you take noir and neo-noir that trying to think of what is it about like what is noir about it seems like at least in america it seems very pertinent to even though other countries do noir but it seems very pertinent to a vision of america that the cohen's have picked up they've added a lot more humor but it's fundamentally, it seems like a vision of a failed society, even a doomed one that from the beginning was there was something crazy and off and wrong about it. And we're just living it out, you yeah. know, in, in, in a horrifying fashion. <laughs> and, and, and we're living no it escape. out. I mean, we're living it out now and we mm. can kind of put it on paper or on or in film now, which isn't something mm. that you could necessarily do with the Hayes Code. So that, it's interesting yes. that you, you look mm -hmm. at, um, you know, I think it's kind of the first, the first phase of noir mm -hmm. is the, the fully inspired by, um, 
like the fully inspired by uh, pulp novels, um, like the 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 private detective ones that mm. Humphrey Bogart did so well. That's kind of like the first phase you can probably pick up of, of noir films. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's interesting that the whole point of those as like having a private detective as the um, or a private investigator or, mm -hmm. you know, um, or a Seamus, as they call him, <laughs> as like the, uh, you know, the, the main character or the hero mm -hmm. is somebody that's far enough away from the police force that they can mm -hmm. solve mysteries or solve the solve crimes without actually getting law enforcement or the government involved mm -hmm. which um you know kind of speaks to the the fully because um i i remember i talked to uh catherine lou um on one of the first episodes mm -hmm. that we had and we talked about we we watched um a couple movies that had come out pretty recently wrath of silence and um you know i i trying to remember what Take the other it. one was <laughs> no, well, we watched Taken, but that was that was on a different. <laughs> that was for a different part of the conversation. We watched Wrath of Silence, and and we watched you know we watched like Chinese films that kind of um, showed that you know the government and the bureaucracy had kind of failed, but they obviously can't say it. And mm -hmm. I feel the same way about um, new, like noir films because like the early ones in the forties, because mm -hmm. you can't say that the government's failed. Mm -hmm. You kind of hint that you know either a citizen has to take something into their own hands. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that citizen ends up becoming a private investigator that once worked with the police or mm -hmm. worked with law enforcement, mm -hmm. but now has kind of had to take it into their own hands because the police force wasn't necessarily corrupt. Like you're mm -hmm. not gonna say, hey, these are corrupt people that we can't trust, mm -hmm. but you can say these are you know people that aren't necessarily doing their jobs the right way. And mm -hmm. here's a private citizen to do it in a way that's, you know, our, our private citizen is also a former cop to do it in a way that's, you know, a little bit better than what the police force mm -hmm. is doing. And you look at, um, you, you look at a lot of Chinese cinema and they kind of have to do it the same way. Right. You have to hint around. <laughs> yeah. And you also have to hint around even more at someone like Dashiell Hammett for all the yeah. people, people who loved his Sam Spade love, in fact, ironically love the machismo, but often with 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 Hammett and then with um you know Chandler who admits he borrows a ton from Hammett um you got to put the, the this lead figure who's an anti-hero figure into into solving something that winds up being annihilating in some way it's got to be some huge threat to his sense of himself as having any kind of masculine control so that often gets softened in the movies. If you read, if you read the Maltese Falcon, which is you know, you know one of the first to really set right. the terms for the whole thing, he goes back to his office in the end after having sent over, as they, you know, he, in other words, handed over um, the woman he maybe loves. He will never quite admit to it if he does. Um, and he goes back and sits in that little isolated office, which has formerly been the site of how he controls. It's, he looks out over the city. He's in his weird tawdry way a kind of king of the city. He can maneuver better than anyone in, the, in this labyrinth. But suddenly he's his, his trusted, you know, girl Friday is, his, his, we'd now call her what an assistant um, is now withdraws from him in horror that he's done this thing. He sort of demonstrated he has no heart. He has no soul. All he cares about is preserving a kind of masculine control. And it's also got to be he's solving something that's so ridiculously convoluted and takes him into absolutely every enclave in the city. So he's got to examine the whole society on his way. And it just gets darker and more and more vertiginous so that it's supposed to be devastating by the end. It's supposed to be a, have a kind of annihilating quality that's new, that that's really new. 
Um, and usually, again, it gets a little softened. You know, we've got Bo Bogart right. walking away saying it's the stuff that dreams are made of over the Maltese mm -hmm. spell kind of stuff, which is a very romantic way of handling. They don't take him back to the office for the devastating finale of, well, congratulations, here's your office where you'll be alone forever. You know, the Coens take on Hammett when they do Muller's Crossing. They don't give him any credit. <laughs> they totally steal everything from Hammett. But it's the same kind of referendum on masculine control and power in a world where they're, they're, it's all illusory. So there's poor, you know, Gabriel Byrne getting beaten up and kicked all over the map and losing everything. By the end, he loses everything. And you're not even sure if it was the woman he loved. It's much more likely it was Leo. Um, but the whole thing is about by the end, he has nothing. You don't know where he's going to go. You don't know what he's going to do. And there's a sense of total loss and devastation. Um, so they really get Hammett beyond what I think a lot of fans who love Hammett and love Chandler and love the pulps and love the tough guy who seems to be at the center um, aren't trying to reckon with that aspect of it, of pure devastation, of total loss of meaning, um, of the, and, but then, but then incomprehensibility much, of society. How much of that is is the, the Hollywood version of it, too, that, you know, can't show that. And like, even, right. you know, exactly. even, even in an implied situation, can't mm -hmm. really show that. And, you know, any any turn towards homosexuality, which does exist in uh -huh. Maltese Falcon, has to be villainy. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like the homosexuality <laughs> in it has to be, look, this yes. is a villainous act. Dudes are sleeping together. And it's mm -hmm. like, is that really the, the height of their villainy? Because that doesn't seem too villainous mm -hmm. to me. That just seems like, you know, dudes, yes. dudes, dudes hanging out. But um, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I got I got two things if I can, because I know we're mm -hmm. going to move on to something else. But one thing with that is that I like the so the idea of the detective. Why is it always detectives? It's mm -hmm. always detectives. I think the idea that like well, it's it's a law enforcement adjacent, but not yeah, beholden but to not the rules within. of culture, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah, they, they well, exist it's, pri it's private law enforcement. Like it, mm -hmm. it kind of is an early form of the neoliberal mm -hmm. turn. Like it's, it's yeah, it, they 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 fulfill the function that government like services would but they happen to be private citizens you know what i mean like but that's a motivating factor as well because every mm -hmm. detective's also you know it's always like oh we're just you know we need another case so i got to close the doors like there's always like these mundane little challenges that happen mm -hmm. with money's at stake he actually yeah. has to make a living he's got a crap yeah. office he usually has a room behind <laughs> it where he lives it's very important that his life be crappy in that yeah. And there's always this moral mm -hmm. quandary of mm -hmm. like, you know, wanting to do good, but also wanting to keep the lights on. And that's something right. that's like it's it's become so ingrained in our society mm -hmm. that like it's something that we just naturally associate with it. But it's interesting to think of like where that came from. Mm -hmm. Right. Because like you think about stories like with, uh, you know, these uh, archetypical type characters like, you know, cowboys like New Sheriff and, yes. and so on and so on. Right. I, I think the detect the noir detective is like a clear example of one that's like, wow, this person maybe is kind of like into into tough spot, kind of a loser. Mm -hmm. Like, like it, it, it's like the it's one of the first uh, American archetypes that is coming not from a place of vi uh, victory, mm -hmm. but coming from a place of like being downtrodden usually, mm -hmm. and that's really interesting to me because I think a lot of people mm -hmm. focus on that is noir inherently misogynistic, mm -hmm. maybe et cetera, et cetera, and like. Lots of other aspects of why does it have to be someone outside the law? Okay, mm -hmm. I think we all know that if we have a modicum of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But the idea that like it is someone that's just one case away from being on the skids themselves, mm -hmm. you know, like that. I think that's really interesting, and and I can't think of a modern archetype or you know, semi-modern archetype that is closer to that. So I'm curious, Eileen, what your thoughts are on that? Well, I'd say two things. Um, 
in only a couple of aspects, like the Western quote unquote hero who has a foot in lawfulness, often is literally becomes the sheriff or is a sheriff, but a foot in lawlessness. Um, the Western hero is almost always someone who's who's what, at least in a, in a kind of classic mode, is always perfectly at home in wilderness, but has to wind up fighting for the civilization he doesn't want to be part of. And then if you really go classic Western, he always had to leave. Because right. <laughs> he can't live, he can't live with the people. He can try to save um, them for lawfulness, but that means he has to leave. So there's there's that kind of, and he never has any money. But the difference is, he never needs any. There's that's a, that's the thing, is right. There's like a suggestion of he's complete and full. Um, like it's, so it's a tacit like, no, he's happy to run around on. His there's horse. no implication you know, of whatever. loserdom. It's, it's yeah, like Ro Ronin exactly. in Seven Samurai or Closer. Yeah. that's another archetype you could use. Um, uh, yeah, which is a, a figure of like you've lost everything, you're barely eating, and then you have to take on a heroic job and save the farmers or whatever. Right, <laughs> yeah, but, he's, yeah. but they, then you have your honor to keep it warm. Right, right. Okay. it's also got huge differences. But I mean, there's a couple of interesting ways you can talk about like yes. Why do we wind up? It's because clearly we there's there was a desire to have someone who could be outside of potentially corrupting institutional um, authority centers, act as a private individual, have a ton seem to have a ton of power that way. And the way you keep that power is you is you stay out of a desperate desire to make money and acquire status. That's that's the way you preserve masculine autonomy is you don't become a, a wage slave. Um, you don't have to bow, you don't have to call anyone boss. You're your own boss. You do your Eugene own Eugene Debs would have been proud. Yeah. <laughs> but again, I think that's why why it's a little, it's a kind of shocking thing to realize the extent to which Hammett and to a lesser extent Chandler were willing, and others, were willing to kind of undercut that very ground, that kind of shabby, <laughs> but still ad perhaps admirable ground that the that the private eye anti-hero stands on or at least make it tremble a little bit like with the hope of justice if maybe not its promise or the right. hope of something coming out the way it should even yeah. i mean in, maybe in, the scales <laughs> being like one yeah. or moved this right. way rather than that way right 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 <laughs> certainly more with chandler chandler yeah. expressly aligns himself with knighthood yeah. right you know, in a I mean, I think I think a a format which is not a movie but is a TV show that kind of um, takes on the full extent of that private detective mentality mm -hmm. and fully is able to realize it is the wire. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with McNulty having no morality at all besides let me solve a case. Mm -hmm. And you know, I don't like the last season of The Wire necessarily, where he fakes the serial killer. But there is a neoliberal aspect of that entire show where budgets mm -hmm. are getting cut more and more. You have to show results. You have to show mm -hmm. statistics. People mm -hmm. are faking statistics. In order. Yeah, like, yeah, like, but, but that is that is neoliberalism inherent, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's it's the fact that, you know, everything is stat based now. And if you mm -hmm. want to actually have any money to fight crime, which is a very real thing in, in an inner city. But if you want to even have close to the funding to fight crime, there has mm -hmm. to be like a statistical um, like model for how you're fighting crime and which is mm -hmm. not something that inherently goes together anyway. So somebody is suddenly juking the stats and then to get elected as a politician, you have to kind of, you know, say, Hey, we've fought crime this much. Here's a percentage, which is not something that necessarily goes with how crime works. Mm -hmm. So it's like this neoliberal element to it. And the fact that McNulty in, in, in the wire, which I'm not necessarily saying is neo-noir, but it definitely mm -hmm. is um, kind of takes elements from it for McNulty's character 
um, in, in terms of like there is no good or evil. It's just whether or not you solve a crime. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the, the, the full extent of a private detective uh, model or like archetype. It's just like, listen, I'm here to fight crime. And if I, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I manage to solve this case, I'm going to be really happy if I don't solve this case. I'm not. What if the case, you know, is, is kind of framing somebody? I don't know. I don't care. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. I'm just here to, you know, mm-hmm. pull out stats. Like stats are my goal. Mm-hmm. Being able to say I solved a crime is my goal. That's mm-hmm. really all. And it feels like kind of building up on that private detector detective model kind of hits that point where it's like, well, why do private detectives kind of, they're not doing well. A lot mm-hmm. of times they seem like they're alcoholics. They mm-hmm. have a full foot in like the, the criminal element. Why do they mm-hmm. keep doing this? And kind of the, the perfect answer to that question in the wire is like, they just, they just have a pathological need to solve crimes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like in, in that case, like they mm-hmm. just have a pathological need to like hit that point. So it's like, all Love right, the game. Like, if that, if that's <laughs> what you get off on, like, sure, dude, like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> though it, it seems like you've completely sac- sacrificed one motivating factor, which is you get out somehow can tell yourself you're outside the system and be, and acting yeah. on your own. That seems to be jettisoned. There's almost like a libertarian kind of aspect mm-hmm. to uh, film noir, like like um, you know, you, you're you're this um, a, ve- a very clear one if you're Mickey Spillane because that's yeah. kind of yeah. his whole thing. Um, but but they're also all <laughs> beta, right just now. like uh, real libertarians, so you know mm-hmm. it all works out. Yeah, you guys can probably hear my dog barking in the background. By the way, I oh yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. And since we're since we're bringing up. Uh, just, you know, television shows we like with mm-hmm. noirish influences. I want to mention that rewatching. So the, the the House of Neutron is currently rewatching Star Trek: The Next Generation right now. Brilliant show. Mm-hmm. Was an automated future space communism. Is that what is that what the saying? But uh, <laughs> no, I love they, the idea. You didn't leave in gay, which is good because yeah, that show le- was anti gay. I, I love Star oh, Trek, really? but yeah, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Okay, we're not talking about that. That's that's but, okay. That's a whole that's a whole podcast. Utterly irrelevant to my point because the point mm-hmm. is that like. You have Jean-Luc Picard, who's, you know, considered this archetypical, like a captain of the starship uh, Mm -hmm. and like leader amongst men, et cetera, et cetera. But what's one of his heroes? This this character, Dixon Hill, who's a private investigator, like Dixon Hill, (laughs) which is very clearly based on these kinds of like books and movies. And like they do these holodecks for comedy, but they do the holodecks where it's all just like every noir uh, cliche that you can think of, Mm -hmm. you know, some hardware character comes in like, you know, everyone's on the take on the make etc etc and i think that's so interesting to think about the idea that you know hundreds of years in the future Mm -hmm. that like there would still be like this fetishistic sort of like oh wow this is you know noir is cool like he's Mm -hmm. awesome he like does good in his own way and like that that even if uh not necessarily with the same trappings of civilization that we have that surrounded the stories Mm -hmm. in that time but could pass forward into the future is very interesting to me that like you know Mm -hmm. basically I think I think noir can have legs in that way because it's it's almost like uh, from think about go back to like caveman tales or something, mm-hmm. right? Like there's like your classic tales of good and evil, but then there's like you know what about the in between? What about that? You know, nothing good ever happened to me. Yeah. Nothing bad is mm-hmm. going to happen to me out tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean certainly just Blade Runner on. There's there's a very friendly <laughs> crossover. Noir is so weird because there's a friendly crossover point with so many genres in the most unlikely ways. But yeah, definitely. 
Um, definitely. Um, I guess that's a long high. way to say we've been watching Star Trek recently. Yeah, that certainly <laughs> sounds like you've been watching Star Trek. But yeah, they're evoking it. Dixon Hill. Let's get the geek out about the wire for like ten minutes. I'm I'm everybody's I'm everybody's uh, dad that just discovered the wire. Yeah, I've been watching I've been watching the wire for years. Don't it's so don't. great. I mean, it's a great show. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I have to go. I'm gonna go check on my dog in a second. Okay. Um, but. I want to, I want to cue up this clip. Mm-hmm. So Nightmare Alley, which apparently, you know, is where we started this conversation at. Um, mm-hmm. The only, the only real clips I could find um, discussing the, the filming of it were Colleen Bay, who played Molly, who, you know, lived until I think she passed away in 2015, mm-hmm. um, talking about her experience filming. And I pulled a couple clips from that. And uh, so this is this is her talking about um, Tyrone Power okay. and his the way that he um, and I know this is a this is a you know it's a it's a really fast way to pull us back into the conversation on the mm-hmm. movie, but um, this, so this is I wanted to play this. This is her talking about Tyrone Power, how he got involved in it, and how she got involved in it. And I think this is an interesting clip. Um, while I make sure that my my dog is is doing okay with my family. Right now. <laughs> So when I found that I was to work with Tyrone Power, I was about ready to faint. Of course, the most handsome man that has ever been in film, I think. And he had a charming personality, that Irish kind of. And, and, and he had the acting ability to go with it. But because he was so very handsome, they put him in costume pictures all sorts of blood and sand, you know, things that were full of spectacles, swashbucklers, etc., full of fights and whatever, but not much substance. You're wonderful, Stan. Honest? Just wonderful. What are you shaking for? I don't know. I'm not scared anymore. I don't know what it is. But I'll be all right in a minute. Sure. Nothing's going to hurt you as long as Stan's around. I know it. You're terrific. It's a marvelous story, and uh, Tyrone Power read the book Nightmare Alley by William Lindsay Gresham. And he saw in this movie the vehicle to escape from the pretty boy image that he had at 20th Century Fox. And he's a fine actor, a, a, a man of uh, a great personal dimension. And so he wanted to do it, and Daryl Zanuck didn't want him to. Now, I became acquainted with this when my first husband, Rod Amato, who worked at Fox, brought this book home and gave it to me. He says, read this book. So I did. I read it with great fascination, and I knew I was born to play Molly. I just knew it was a wonderful, wonderful character. So I went to see Daryl Zanuck, and we had a nice chat, and I told him I was born to play Molly. And he was very nice. He said, well, if we get a big name for the geek, we can probably float some unknowns, an unknown for Molly. But if we get a medium-sized star, then we have to go for three top names for the women. You understand that? I said, yes, I understand that. And uh, however, I was um, allowed to test with the, uh, the gentlemen who were trying out for the geek part. 
I, I could test in the part of Molly, which I did. And it was the test material from these Nightmare Alley tests that Henry Hathaway saw and wanted me for Kiss of Death. So the tapestry of life at 20th Century Fox was uh, had multi-threads, many threads. Nice. I don't know. I thought it was interesting that they pushed for it as hard as they did. Yeah. It's crazy, in fact. It's, it's insane. And there, there <laughs> is that one account about how supposedly Zanuck so didn't want Tyrone Power to be in this thing that they, after they spent all this money make this movie, he tried to pull it from theaters fast and not publicize it. And all, it, it makes no sense. I don't know how true that could possibly be. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll play that as my last, as the last clip. Oh, is that there? That's covered. Okay. Um, yeah. but it's in her. It's in her. Like you know, reading of of mm -hmm. this movie. But um, and then we can we can wrap up and I'll have Conan do his uh, his <laughs> I think he, you know, yeah, his signature <laughs> bit. But um, <laughs> this is this is a really this is the last clip I'll play. It's it's interesting. It's um, she's talking about how Zanuck really kind of wanted to pull it from. Uh, oh, okay. She play very mm -hmm. fast and uh. To the point where a lot of the actors involved in it thought that, like, you know, um, certain people involved in the movie, like, definitely deserved Oscars and that they didn't mm. even let it jump into Oscar circulation, Damn. which is, you know, fascinating. Crazy. Yeah. Don't hear anything. Because we all thought it was great. I mean, the performances, the scenes, the way it worked, we knew we had something wonderful. Somebody like Helen Walker, what a performance. The Cobra woman of all time. Boys running barefoot through the hills. A dog is with him. A dog is with him. His name was Jip. Go on. <laughs> See how easy it is to hug him? <laughs> Ian Keith, to me, should have gotten an Academy Award for that scene. But Zanuck deliberately said, don't do anything but just let this out. We'll let it, let it go out and let it die and go away. We were all disappointed, of course. And at one time I said, oh, if I could see my name in lights at Brahman's Chinese, I'd be happy forever. So I drove and I saw my name in lights at Brahman's Chinese. And that was, I went, I thought, well, am I supposed to be happy forever? Hmm. It's nice to have your name in lights, but I'm not happy forever. Wow, that is very poignant. My God. <laughs> By the way, you know what won and kind of almost swept that year was uh, Best Years of Our Lives. Oh, which, fine. You know, it's good. It's good it enough. Is, but but yeah. like, what a safe choice. But it's yeah. not happy forever. Wow. Yeah. She kind of goes into it fast, but it's like, you know, he, he kind of buried it. And then it, it took until um, I think the the seventies or eighties for mm. it really to to you know I think probably probably the eighties I guess mm -hmm. with um, 
yeah with with it kind of coming back on tv and um being being looked at like for the first time again and people mm-hmm. being like oh shit this is like a good movie but mm-hmm. um so we we do this we do this segment and then I'll go to everyone for final thoughts. Where I, can Conan, I just can I just real quick? I just want to. I feel disingenuous if I didn't mention mm-hmm. the fact that the whole grift about how they do the mind reading with the voice inflection and stuff. Mm-hmm. I found that stuff fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like outside of anything to do with noir, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Because I'm always into that the kind of like how was the trick done, etc. kind of thing, and mm-hmm. be like, oh, like she puts an inflection on a certain word yeah. in a certain way. And that means this. And, and I was like, Oh, that's so that's, I thought that was, that was cool as hell. I think that's well, fair. and they really push it. Cause at first you can, you can completely believe that's how, when they're just holding yeah. up objects like a coin and you could easily see how a code would work. But the longer they do the act, you're like, Really? The more crazy, like, <laughs> how could he possibly get that? Well, how could they have a code where they not only can, <laughs> they can repeat the whole question? How would there be any code for that? So another, that's another thing I really love because it starts to take off into an, a gray area of like, wait a minute. Yeah. Is there something about being such a con artist that you can read people past a point that's rational? Yeah, yeah, like it's like, like magical realism of yes. uh, being a con artist. Yeah, absolutely, and that happens <laughs> several times. And in reading. the and in the book, they kind of take it even further when um mm. he's kind of forcing her to learn the code, mm. and there's like number eighty eight wants to join to a club, uh, an association, or an, an organization or some organization. Wow, mm. but it's like he's making her repeat that over and over again. She's like, mm. oh wow, joining a club, uh, an organization. You know what I mean? Like so, it's like. There's so many elements to the code. It's not just like, oh, well, this is the mother. This is, you know, right. this is something with the sister. This is something right. with, it's like number 88. Like they're just, you know, <laughs> yes. they're listing off all these different phrases. Like what can the phraseology for that be? Like possibly, what, be. What, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do we be today? Is, is Instagram influencer has a yeah. true crime podcast. Has a, has a lower tier podcast about film that goes into. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, how is he supposed to have guessed that, you know, when Lilith first asks her question to trip him up, he has to just common sense as he says, guess that she's disingenuous. Yeah. It's about well, her see, mother. That, that one, her mother that actually one, is dead. Uh, there's some wild guessing going on. It makes that her one, cool that scene, one was a guess like, I could actually get because mm-hmm. I think that you kind of feel in the air maybe that she's reading the Oh, mom's sake, you know, so maybe like it's challenging enough that he's like, Oh no, this is someone that's trying to like trip me up. But like, there's other ones where he just kind of guesses yeah. it and it's like, How, like, how the fuck how do you the possibly hell? get that one? Yeah, there's no sentence. way, <laughs> I know, but, like, I know. like, I don't care how many codes you right, there's no way, man. How like, come exactly. on, but I love it. Like, yes, and I suspend disbelief because I'm like, This this kicks ass, this is really great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's the great Stan. He yeah, is the great. He plays hotels; they're not carnivals anymore. Um, I also, I also like that he works his way up the like huckster huckster chain, yeah, <laughs> which is like not something you think has like a has like you know just somebody with like a fake crystal ball, and then you're like, oh well, I guess the next one is you know you're working at a hotel. Oh, I guess the next one is you're like doing private spiritual readings, and you're like, oh shit, like this really does have like a, a ladder that you could climb, like. You could Absolutely. become like the Elon Musk of like <laughs> scammers and which I mean is Elon Musk, but like, you know, you could, you know, in the 1940s. You right. Could <laughs> and it's weird because they show, because you're right, they take you step by step and they, and they do really insist on the difficulty of the code and everything. 
to the yeah. point that there's actually a little edge of respect for labor in this. Like you think they're just no nothing carnies. You got to be fucking brilliant to do this. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how the hell they're doing it. The Huckster so like ladder. That. The, uh, the Dave, <laughs> yeah, that's a it's tough the Dave Rubin story. <laughs> exactly. Figure <laughs> <laughs> I get it in the comments. Right. <laughs> All right. Conan, you ready for our? Uh, and I walked all over my signature bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So That's what we're trying to do it. Perlene, um, are you on Letterbox? Um, Letterbox is like it's a it's a site where you can do. I'm uh, not. All right, so you, you do you do kind of reviews of each movie. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't on it till doing the show. Mm -hmm. Oh, Andy's back for your signature bit. Oh. Um, <laughs> so there's a uh, so you go on it and you you log the movies you've watched as like you know entries. And you can rate and log movies you like want to watch too. That's mm -hmm. a, that's yeah. a real feature, which mm -hmm. I have not used that feature yet. It, it's mm -hmm. it's I don't want to watch any more movies. I've been I've been <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, and you so, can make lists and like it's so it's like a social okay. media site. But uh -huh. It's uh, it's for uh, based around watching film and mm -hmm. discussing film together. So right. you do yeah. where maybe you would of interest to people that are in this show, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew's, so, and, Conan, Andrew's on it. Uh, Forrest is on it as the show. So okay. if you follow Moving Extra, oh, right. that's Forrest. So everyone else yeah. could hate a movie and I and I could love the movie and I mm -hmm. could just write a great review. And everyone yeah. could be like, yo, fuck you. Yes. <laughs> I've been, I, that's my life. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'm on it. Uh, Matthew Film Guy's on it. A bunch of people right. are on it. It's it's right. really... Uh, Matthew it, Film Guy is like the king of Letterboxd. Oh. Like. <laughs> Uh, it's a great resource and mm -hmm. uh, a good, and it's, it, it makes it fun in a way that something like IMDb is not. That's okay. Yeah. Right? Was that disingenuous? I think so. Anyway. Okay. Go ahead, that All right. Yeah. IMDb sponsor mm -hmm. us, and then we'll yeah, say yeah, nice exactly. Letterbox or IMDb. Come on, yeah. gonna do it. Let's go. All right. So yeah. So so Conan finds ones that are one sentence. And mm -hmm. he finds the best of the one sentence reviews. Because mm -hmm. I yeah, think these are the it. ones that like, like you can make long drawn out, and I do, I do this all mm -hmm. the time. I mean, you can make long drawn out, you know, regular reviews mm -hmm. that are detail laden, all the reasons why you liked it, loved it, single things, like whatever. And I do that stuff all the time. But the thing that really pops for this site is just the quick hit. Just a, okay. Yeah, yeah, I haven't made it onto that. I haven't made it onto these yet. So no. <laughs> well, I'm not going to put anyone from the show. Why well, put Matthew? I'm, can't, I'm kidding. <laughs> all right. <laughs> There's definitely ones that would have been on if it wouldn't have been like, come on, like, yeah, whatever. Here's anyway, what I like better on this. Yeah, here's how brilliant we are. Come on. All right, and you ready? Longest uh, intro ever. Yeah, yeah. So here, here they are, Eileen. This is uh, okay. I would let any one of these women ruin my life. <laughs> That's Aaron. All right. <laughs> Geek tragedy. Geek, oh, okay, that was nice. <laughs> that's Michael Strensky. That that's, uh, that's good. I don't that's know. good. This is a movie about a guy who was so good at fucking people over that he accidentally managed to fuck himself. Also, while on his <laughs> God, those are all good. Now yeah. I'm really daunted. Jeez. <laughs> and then, of course, I spoil this one. Carney Noir. Carney Noir. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. That is beautiful. Those are great. I would be no good at this whatsoever. And our final one. Final one. Chekhov's Geek. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. Yes. Think got about it. it. <laughs> That's right. That that's is Tim beautiful Kopp for you. Yeah. Check my, out, check my, out. My I love a good Chekhov's gun reference. So that's mm -hmm. that's a. Oh, my my one sentence review for this was mm -hmm. uh, if you've ever wondered how does a guy start biting the heads off of chickens, this is the movie for you. 
much. So you're all great at this. I'm amazed you're not all kings of letterbox already. Well, I started off. I started <laughs> off doing like. I started off doing good, doing good like long ones where I was uh-huh. like really trying to analyze the movie. And I was like, this is not what this thing is. For. No one wants. No one wants. I mean, well, <laughs> so I will say there is there is a community for people that do like that and do kind of search that out, but it's like a small part of the community. Most people are just there to like, oh, what's, uh, you know, it, it's like mm-hmm. in our ADD adult mm-hmm. society of social media, it's it's kind of what you think it is, but in a good way, because this is all the proletariat, right? It's just, you don't have to be like Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. You can just log on to this site and boop, 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 and pop out some hilarious stuff and have it read on some show you've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, now I have a new ambition. I want to... <laughs> One one uh <laughs> one Jacobin person that's on it is Nando Vila. Oh really? Yeah, he does he does a lot of them. He does them, and oh, I disagree yeah. with at least half of his reviews. Oh, <laughs> right. There's even a lot of disagreement among us Jacobin critics. Obviously. Dear sir. Lots. <laughs> um. All right. So the last the last little bit of the show is uh, uh-huh. final thoughts, and I'll start with you, Aileen. Um, final thoughts on this movie. Anything you want to? ad that we didn't yeah, talk I just want to or... I just want to throw in I, I remembered again we forgot to talk about the the trailer for the new one and it's fascinating because no, it really I'll, I'll, gra- I'll pull it up while you're while you're talking it, yeah it's really um amazing how boldly different it makes sense in a way that Guillermo del Toro is going with his version of this because whereas the one we just we've been talking about is it goes for a kind of plainness especially for film noir which can get really amazingly visually over the top it goes for a kind of tawdry got a lot of realistic details you can see the dirt on people's clothes you can see <laughs> you can see um very homely ugly details of the world he's going all out supernatural over the top for a guy who's who's claiming there are no supernatural elements it sure looks um in in the preview like it's it's all wild darkly woo woo um the devil's coming for you kind of visuals did I not give you enough time to find it? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Keep stalling. <laughs> Keep stalling. <laughs> no, just the internet here is taking a second. But well, um, and you know the okay. casting is is on the one hand seems ideal, but on another, in other ways, just because I love the old movie, probably I'm a little more suspect. Like Bradley Cooper looks shifty. <laughs> he looks like he could be a hustler in a way that that Tyrone Power looks like a swashbuckler. I don't know. I don't know. I have a hard. I'm having a hard time with looking forward to Del Toro's version. But I mean, it seems like it's got to keep totally, an open mind. Totally different kind of movie, and like it's going to be totally way right. So yeah. I mean, it really is. Yes, and you know there are times that, that works, and there are times it's like more of an update. I'm thinking of like yeah. Wages of Fear versus. I mean, for Ghost me, Lord, it has a you know? it has a quality of it's strenuously lurid in a way that I don't think helps the kind of carny horror. But we'll see. Yeah. And right. I can't think I of did, anything else I to did, say. I did blow up, so <laughs> oh, you, guys yeah, cool. Check it out. you guys hit that okay. point perfectly. This episode brought to you by Searchlight Pictures. <laughs> it's funny because if if anyone were to say that, you know, it's like it it wouldn't it wouldn't look good because it took so long for me to pull it up. Yeah, <laughs> just added it. Oh, here we go. They fool themselves. Nightmare Alley. Only in theaters December 17th. Oh, that's the short version. Well. Oh, they got the alley. Hey, they've got the alley in there. They do have the alley. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle. Doctor, how about that? Please lie down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune. It's time that you deliver. When does it end? I want to know. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. We'll see. Okay. I'll be the judge of that. We don't fool people, Stan. They <laughs> fool themselves. So I, so, I have to, so I have to ask this since we, um, I think, did a good job with this with Dune. Mm. Do we want to do, um, I guess, in either late December or early January, do we want to do a, a, like a, a redux of this episode where once mm. we've had a chance to all watch it, um, come back and talk about it because I would be 100% down for that. That would be cool. Sure. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Let's, 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 we can make this a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever they do, do a it. remake, which I would always do. <laughs> we have to no, see, I wouldn't want to do that for a lot of remakes, but I like Guillermo del Toro, del Toro uh -huh. and I had fun listening to, you know, at least the half of the book I did. Uh -huh. um, and I think it would be a fun movie to talk about. Well, yeah. it'll be interesting no matter mm. what. Even if it's. Oh, yeah. Be, I'm interested enough to certainly to watch it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be worth a discussing with Absolutely. Like, yeah, let's, in early January, probably because we're going to do, um, which Eileen, if you want to be in on any of these, you can, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to do sci-fi month in December. Oh. And wow. so if you have any ideas about movies, you want to be on, in on a hundred percent, but, um, so early not, January, not Eileen, everyone wants to be on that one. It's All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Understandably. <laughs> your name, your names are too close. You know, alien, Eileen, like, I know. You know the confusion, <laughs> it would just be hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just, I just had a friend that is really into the alien movies mm -hmm. that another one of my friends that's been on this podcast briefly was like, Oh, you should talk to him. And then Conan's like, you shouldn't talk to him. We have enough people. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have? Like 18 people. Well, all I mean, in tiny screens. <laughs> it's not. It's not going to be that bad. But I'm, I'm. I'm getting my friend. I guess we're getting announces. I'm getting my friend Bonnie Burton, who's like mm -hmm. uh, you know, sci-fi uber geek uh, mm -hmm. royalty. Yeah. And that's going to be really good. And when when you have interesting folks on that can speak at length about stuff, mm -hmm. the big panels are fun and everything. But you just get a little bit less out of everyone. So mm -hmm. it's like yeah. it's, if it's more of a party, that you can get kind of cool weird stuff or like that really weird thing that happened for the showgirls episode that you did uh but you know well, like somebody with somebody with twenty thousand followers just tweeting it out and saying watch this yeah watch. <laughs> that's what wow. happened with that's what happened with the showgirls watch this chaotic tire fire that 
does anything like the rest of the, the show. Oh, yeah. wow. Uh, but but for me, <laughs> for my taste, like, I think, like, this is great, right? Like, a, sm a small mm -hmm. panel for this is awesome. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we get to kind of, like, get back and forth, like, mm -hmm. get, get everything out and on there. But it's funny. Everybody, first thing, people are like, oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're doing Alien? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, yeah, sorry, it's already booked. Like so yeah. many people. Conan's being Conan's being up to a uh, full co-host for season two, and oh. this is you know we're giving him and, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm announcing it now. But we've uh you know this is the last um this is the last season one episode, which you know I mean I'm not gonna lie, I had a hard time at first envisioning that people were going to want to necessarily be on every episode of this and. Mm -hmm. Like in general, so the mm -hmm. first like ten episodes or something, I feel like people can kind of in some ways skip because it's like we had so many people on, but it was also insecurity on my part, being like, I don't know, you figuring out what the show was. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. I was yeah, gonna I say know. season yeah. two might be where the hell did Andrew go, but Andrew, so. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a you know what? At the end of season one. Oh, <laughs> is he okay? <laughs> Am I on? <laughs> yeah, this is fantastic. I, do I sound like a robot? Why does why does, why does Conan noises. why does Conan have long hair and a goatee now? Yeah, did he, did he, did he devour Andy. Like <laughs> it's like a dark thing. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about Kirby. Oh, or Kirby, or Kirby just. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. but um. It. Yeah, so anyway, I think you're doing final uh, thoughts, right? Was this no, final? yeah, so yeah, so final Conan, thoughts. Conan, final thoughts on this. Um, any final thoughts, I guess, about that? That trailer seems it seems it's a completely different movie, it's a completely different story. It has yeah. nothing to do with what we just cool. watched. Yeah, I mean, it looks it looks like it'll be a cool movie. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I. I, so again, I, I think Emerald Alley is great. I think it's a great example of sort of however you want to call it as a subgenre. Uh, it, it's it, it's a different kind of noir. It shows a lot of things about you know the depths that people will go to to rise to what they perceive to be heights, and it doesn't do so in a over show over business. <laughs> doesn't do it in an overtly moralistic or hackneyed way, and it it tells a story where. You know, ultimately, like all the characters that are in this are all pretty well rounded and have their mm -hmm. own arcs. We don't necessarily see all of them, mm -hmm. but it it runs a like it walks a tightrope and it does it, so to speak. Uh, it, it does it very well <laughs> in a in a genre that, again, I never really thought about Carney Noir. Mm -hmm. But it's like it's absolutely the quintessential and maybe the only Carney Noir movie. And, mm -hmm. and and I love it. It's great. It's unique. It's interesting. Once if you realize once you realize that there is potentially Carney Noir, you're like, oh fuck, this is like this is where Noir 100 percent should have gone. I mean, should have gone. That's what to say. Yeah, God. you know, let's let's go, baby. Let's go. Yeah. Your name is uh, Matt. Detective Matt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I've think... known I've known quite a few Carneys, and they're they're fun, they're fun people. They're not people you want to hang out with every day, but you know, they're fun <laughs> when sure. they come into town in July. And <laughs> right, right. Well, right. Was that, you know, there was that one show that was sort of um, trying to do that and like the David Lynch thing with. Uh, um, oh right, uh, what was that? Ooh, I can't remember. It was in like the oh. Dust Bowl. Yeah, yeah, I'm forgetting now. It was pretty good. Like it kind of tried it that kind of thing. Anyway, I, wasn't, I wasn't. See, I wasn't talking about. I was talking about like real life when you know the fair comes the, the, the real the fair, the fair comes into town every yeah. you know every every year in new Paltz and mm -hmm. they like every person that i know that 
mildly sells drugs ends up uh, oh, okay. selling out. And then all of a sudden, like a few of your friends are like, I'm going to join the carnival. And then a week later, they're back and they're like, I didn't want to join the carnival. That was terrible. Next thing you know, they came back and they did time that summer as a geek. <laughs> they probably were. No, I, I had a, I had a close friend that like um, one year when I was, I think I was 15 or 16, joined the carnival and came back two weeks later. It was like, oh, no, that is. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> My my ex girlfriend actually did for a couple weeks too, and was like, mm, "No, wow, sounds like, a, sounds like a bad scene. this." Is, I I know exactly zero people who joined the carnival on no, a temporary never, or permanent. I didn't basis. know in this day and age, you know, that that was a thing. Like, yeah. funny way to join the no, no, you, well, you, you still kind of, you still kind thing. of, you still kind of can. It's not. I'm I mean, sure. it's, apparently, it's <laughs> it's worse than it was back then. I think because now it's like. You know, it's a little bit more aggressive, I think, you know, carnival life. And there aren't like the fun shows where it's like, you know, someone that's kind of a little bit mentally off can join the show. And then like, it's not like that. It's just, you know, it's just guys that fix rides that are like, I was going to say fixing yeah. the tilter whirl. And it's, yeah. like, it's, like, it's like 15 mechanics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's carnival now. They're like, hey, I'll fix your car. I'll fix the ride. I don't know. But, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love the film. I think mm -hmm. that it was a criminal act that it was, wasn't mm -hmm. like taken into consideration for Academy Awards and things mm -hmm. along those lines. Because it's something, but it's also something where like anyone that's willing to search out for movies like this oh, is yeah. a little treasure. Right, mm -hmm. it's, it's, and and like you can go onto a letterbox or something and get a recommendation for it and be like, oh hell yeah, that kicked ass! I'm so mm -hmm. glad like I took that recommendation from that person, mm -hmm. Conan Neutron, mm -hmm. uh, to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, you know, I, it's it, it should it be more than a hidden treasure? Yeah, probably. But uh, I think it's kind of interesting enough as it is, and maybe that's okay, right? Maybe it doesn't need to be like. Uh, I mean, think of something like Freaks, right? Freaks mm -hmm. is a crazy ass movie, mm -hmm. but like I feel One like Freaks. Of us. <laughs> exactly, uh, but I feel like it's become there like, can't um, be any more Freaks. Freaks, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 mainstream in such a way that if I see a movie that tries to do Freaks, I'm like, oh, you're doing Freaks, huh? Yeah, okay. I get it. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and like it would be a bummer, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. is that going to be the case with the Del Toro uh, uh, Nightmare Alley? I don't know. Doesn't look like it. We'll see. I'll find out. Yeah. Anyway, so last thing is that uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna redux my my original opening, which <laughs> is that you either die a grifter or you live long enough to see yourself become the geek. Become the geek. Thank Moral you. of the story. Thank Moral you. Of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess my one thing that I'll bring mm -hmm. up at the end is um, American Horror Story, which mm -hmm. you know is a show that I liked up mm -hmm. until probably the season that I'm about to mention, the freak show season. Mm -hmm. Um, like the first three seasons I thought were really good. And that fourth mm -hmm. season was good, but like, wasn't as good, but I think they did take a lot of elements from Nightmare Alley and mm -hmm. took a lot of elements from other shows too. Like, you know, not going to say that that was what they really took, you know, ideas from, but, mm -hmm. um, I, I thought it was interesting that like looking back on that show and kind of how far that they were able to take it in 2014 or 15. Like I'm, I'm happy this movie couldn't necessarily do that, and I've seen Freaks, mm -hmm. and, or at least you know big, big parts of, uh, <laughs> big parts of the movie Freaks and mm -hmm. um, controversial movie. This is also a controversial movie, but mm -hmm. um, for different reasons, I'd say. So I, I don't know. I enjoyed watching this. I think, and and 
well, not I think I did enjoy watching this, but I think that um, you know, the the Tyrone Power thing is interesting to mm-hmm. me, like that story behind it, and mm-hmm. it also is good that the studio system failed. So that's yeah. <laughs> so those are the last. That's the last that's thought. The last thought. I'll have one last laugh. We haven't really got, done a shout out to Joan Blondell for being so great as Zena. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah, this was our first foray, basically, into being not a leading lady, but yeah. like a character actor, and it's her best, I think. She's so so good, and it's such a great role. I mean, it, it's it's almost unheard of for this era to have a woman who's that likable, who's yeah. basically saying, "My weakness is men, and I'm always cheating on my husband, and I've got to save him because of that," and do it in a way that you feel there's no judgment on her. There's no there's no her own judgment on her, but you you don't like her less. You like her more. You want to see a spinoff with just her? Like, yeah. What's she up to? What's she doing? Yeah. I, I also, I like that her tarot card reading, right? <laughs> like she kind of throws it out there and she's like, oh, the hanged man and Tyrone Power freaks out. And you're like, no, this is going to, this is going to end up with a hanged man situation. Like this, this, there, there's no way that Tyrone Power wins out in this situation. Like <laughs> right. your, your tarot reading is going to a hundred percent come yeah. out to be accurate. <laughs> yes. So I, I, I liked that part about it too. But, Absolutely, um, and in movies, nobody pulls out a tarot deck, so it will not be true. That just yeah. doesn't <laughs> it's, it's a trope, and it's the law. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, anyone watching, for mm-hmm. sticking with us through 40 episodes. It's fucking insane that we started wow. this in July, and we've hit mm-hmm. 40 episodes. I mean, Damn. you know, we started this also, like, around the time that I stopped working for Jackman, which we won't hold against you, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I'm I'm really happy this has lasted as long that we still have ideas and that you know it's it's grown as much as it has. And mm-hmm. I really do feel um, you know, talking about movies is something that I'm far more comfortable with, I guess, than uh, you know, having to give Ben Burgess my opinions on whatever's happening <laughs> in politics. So you know what? I consider this a win, and I'm (laughs) going to say, left is best.